All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick in order to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Vladimir Putin has thrown a lifeline to the Biden administration, something to, you know, distract them from all their failures and their domestic policies. That's right, another potential foreign war that the United States might be engaged on. What we're going to talk about today is what, if anything, the United States should do about Ukraine. And all coming up on this episode of Making the Argument, where we make the arguments to defend a free society. Okay, by now you've probably heard a thousand different opinions on what we should do about Russia and Ukraine. And there's been some good things thrown out there from people that are foreign policy experts, from people that are political analysts, from people that are former military. My own background, as many of you know, I'm a former Green Beret. I did two combat tours over in Iraq where we were largely conducting counterinsurgency operations by the time I got there. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to lend you my opinion, right, <laughs> amongst all the others, about what, if anything, we should do in Ukraine. So first of all, let's kind of set the stage right now. Putin has been saber rattling about Ukraine, specifically was the Crimea before, uh, for a long time now. And part of this has been as a result of his perceived notion of American weakness. So again, when, when Trump was president, um, I don't think any of our, you know, let's say adversaries in the world had any doubt that Trump would be willing to potentially either go to war or use U.S. military forces as a response to foreign aggression, right? Now, by the same token, Trump actually took a fairly non-interventionist policy when it came to a lot of U.S. involvement in foreign engagements, right? He wanted to pull more troops out of Iraq, or he wanted to pull troops out of Afghanistan. He wasn't all that eager to get involved in other fights or other foreign interventions. But by the same token, he maintained this mentality that you just never quite knew what he was going to do. And as frustrating as that might have been from you know, uh, the perspective of someone like me, who at times is like, look, I, I want a very clear U.S. foreign policy, there is some benefit to your enemies around the world not being quite sure what you're willing to do. But with Biden, right, Putin sees weakness. And, right, and, and how, can you, how can you blame him? You look at what happened in Afghanistan, right? And there was no excuse for Afghanistan. Um, and, and again, up front, I said that I thought it was time to pull troops of Afghanistan, but there was a right way to do it, there was a wrong way to do it, and then there was a worse way to do it, and then there was a Biden way to do it, which somehow was below the worst possible way to do it. And again, what the, the signal that that sent to allies and enemies alike all across the world was that one, not only did Joe Biden have you know, no real stomach for any sort of significant foreign intervention, but he didn't even have the stomach to withdraw properly. And so 
when you do something like that, this actually encourages your enemies to take advantage of what they consider to be a weakened U.S. position. So that leaves us in our current situation, where now we are running the risk of a full Russian invasion of Ukraine. So let's kind of lay out what's going on within the geopolitical environment. First thing to understand about Ukraine is that there is a high concentration of ethnically Russian people within Ukraine. Right, Ukraine for you know a long time now was a part of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Right, it, it has fallen within the Russian sphere of influence. Before that, it was part of the Russian Empire. Right, so there is a lot of ethnically Russian people within Ukraine. And when the Soviet Union dissolved, Ukraine became an independent state along with a lot of other different Eastern European countries: uh, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, right. So from Putin's perspective who I think is, is not, you know, he's not a communist, but he's a strong man. He believes in the greatness of Russia, right? He sees an opportunity right now in order to take back certain strategic territory that has certain advantages for a couple of different reasons. One, from an economic perspective, Ukraine was considered the bed, the bed excuse me, the breadbasket of the Soviet Union for a long time. Obviously, it's got a lot of access to the Black Sea, right? So there's certain economic advantages that Ukraine uh, provides with respect to its agricultural prowess, with respect to certain natural resources, etc. So, on the economic standpoint, that is what you know a potential you know conquering army might see as valuable about Ukraine. On the other side, there's also, again, the large concentration of uh, ethnic Russians living in the Ukraine. The Ukrainian government has you know, been in the news quite a bit for its corruption. Its overall economy has not been doing well. And so Putin sees an opportunity here. Uh, not to mention the fact that, again, if, if Putin is the sort of person that believes in the overall grandness and, and uh, you know, wanting to see Russia once again elevated to a strong and strategic power on the world stage, saber-rattling and potentially taking territory is one of the ways that you can achieve that. Now, again, I know that we look at this through our, our you know, modern terms and modern lens where the conquest ethic hasn't really been something that has been prominent for, gosh, you know, hundreds of years now. We kind of see this as, uh, is he really going to do this? Is, this? is this really the way that Vladimir Putin brings back the, the glory of Russia? And the answer is, is that if you look at the long course of human history, this was kind of the ways you, you did it. So there are economic advantages to Putin taking the Ukraine. There's, um, you know, for lack of a better term, nationalistic um, advantages to taking Ukraine, provided that he can do it quickly, effectively, and with very little cost. Right. So this is one of the most important things to understand when we talk about Russia. Russia is not what the Soviet Union used to be, which was one of the premier powers on the world stage, rivaled only at that time by the United States of America. Now, that doesn't mean that their system was great. It doesn't mean that their economy was great. It just meant that they had a lot of people, a lot of resources, and they tended to be somewhat militaristic, and so they could gain concessions through that threat of military intervention. And you're starting to see some of that same stuff arising now with Putin on the world stage. So how do you prevent this? Now, there's a couple of different ways that we could address this. I've had a lot of people, or I've seen a lot of people, whether it be on YouTube, on Facebook, on Twitter, TikTok, whatever, asking, are we about to run headlong into World War III as a result of what's going on in Ukraine? Now, I'll tell you right now, I don't think that's highly probable. That doesn't mean it's impossible, but I don't think it's highly probable, and here's the reason why. The Russian military is not what the Soviet military was in the 70s and 80s, right? They don't have nearly the amount of people that they used to. 
their economy is, I mean, to get put this in perspective for you, the Russian economy with respect to GDP is somewhere around the same degree as Mexico, right? And, and that surprises a lot of people because most of us, especially my age or a little bit older, grew up, grew up in this era where Russia was a significant threat economically and militarily, right? That is simply not the case right now. So the question on some level is, is, does Putin really have the ability to throw us all into World War III? I don't think he does because honestly, his military is not as strong. Um, it's not as advanced. Russian military equipment uh, just does not pass muster when you compare it with even US, with US military equipment or even you know, NATO equipment within Western Europe, right? But what he also knows is that the United States is war weary and for good reason. We've been involved in incredibly long wars, the longest war in US history, and he's anticipating that we're not gonna be too eager to get involved. At the same time, Europe and a lot of our NATO allies have essentially kind of not held up to their end of the bargain with respect to the GDP they were supposed to spend on their own military. Why didn't they do that? Well, because the United States was always there to bail them out if there was any sort of significant military threat. So what should we do at this point? Again, if, if we accept the fact that Russia does not have the ability to throw us all into you know, World War III um, on, on any sort of grounds that we think of when we, when we think about global conflicts like World War I or World War II, where there were just you know, massive military deployments, um, massive casualties, massive um, you know, people being displaced all over Europe and, and Asia, right? I, I don't think that's gonna happen. But that doesn't mean that he won't still risk it if he thinks he has the chance of making very quick gains with no real response coming from NATO or the United States. Now, it's important to remember, we don't have the same treaty obligations with the Ukraine as we do with NATO countries, right? So we're not under any obligation, according to treaty, to go to war over Ukraine. However, there is some foreign policy, um, we'll say a objective, um, there, there's international law which says that if you're essentially fighting a war of aggression, that that is, you know, quote unquote, illegal. And we saw this with Iraq invading Kuwait. It was this idea that we're not going to let one country simply invade a poorer, smaller, or weaker country simply because they can, that, that the world will essentially marshal their resources to come in and prevent that from taking place. But again, Putin's anticipating that we don't got the will to do it. So let's go through a couple scenarios. One scenario is Congress declares war against Russia and we shipped ground forces over to Ukraine in order to protect its sovereignty. I think the chances of that happening are very low and here's why. One, the United States Congress has not declared war since World War II. Now, for those of you at home saying, wait a second, Nick, we've been involved in a lot of wars. You would be correct, but that doesn't mean that Congress actually declared war. Instead, with kind of expansive powers under the War Powers Act, we've allowed the presidency and the executive branch of government to be able to deploy troops into multiple theaters and to essentially conduct war without actually declaring it. Now, anybody that has paid attention to me or my positions on this thinks that that is horribly unconstitutional and, and completely against the best American traditions of saying that, look, if we're gonna go to war, if we think it's important enough in order to send men and women into combat, well, then we should declare war. But unfortunately, there's been this precedent set since the 1960s, where really the 1950s, where presidents no longer need to do that in order to deploy massive amounts of US ground troops. But because of what's happened in Afghanistan and Iraq, because these have finally come to a close, even if we're not happy with how they closed out, the American people are, not, are probably not going to stand for sending divisions over in to defend Ukraine. 
So I don't see that happening. Now, if it did happen, here's what we need to understand. U.S. military training, equipment, personnel are the best in the world, bar none. We, we just are. Um, it's not even close. For as much as sometimes people complain about how much we spend on defense, what it does mean is that when we, went, when we do deploy, we have the best troops, the best equipment, um, and, and typically the, the, we have the economic prowess to be able to sustain conflicts for an extended period of time, and that dissuades other people from getting into massive conflicts with the United States, right? And all that can have positive effects, even though sometimes our foreign policy makes no sense or, or violates what I believe are constitutional principles. So if we did get into a head-to-head -head competition with Russia on the battlefield in Ukraine, I, I believe the United States would probably achieve air superiority within a couple of months of actual combat kicking off. Obviously, we'd have to send fleets over there. We have to send carrier battle groups. Some of them we have regularly stationed over in that area of the world. But th there, would, there would be time that it would take to be able to move forces both in the United States as well as our, our Western European uh, bases in order to be able to position people to uh, effectively combat and gain air superiority. But I do think we would do it relatively quickly because again, the Russian Air Force cannot stand up to the United States Air Force. The other question would be though, is that if we got involved on that level, what would other countries do? Because obviously, Russia is not the main strategic threat to the United States right now, that's communist China. And China has objects on the Spratly Islands, um, they have objects on Taiwan, right? There's other areas where they wanna be able to you know, maintain a powerful sphere of influence and potentially even take territory for either cultural reasons with Taiwan or for strategic resource reasons with respect to the Spratly Islands. The other thing that we could potentially see is China kind of playing a de facto management role over large areas of Afghanistan for a couple of reasons. One, uh, the richness of rare earth minerals within Afghanistan, not to mention the fact that China for a while now has been pushing um, on you know, facilitating greater trade and trade routes um, that don't rely on the sea. So basically think of it as, as products being able to go to market not just through um, you know, ports, but also overland from China into Central Asia and then eventually into Europe. And, and theoretically, if they saw the United States bogged down in another area of the world, they, they might look at that as an opportunity to be able to take certain advantages or certain liberties in those other countries. So that's one of the major concerns we have is getting involved with Russia doesn't necessarily mean World War III, but it does mean that other bad actors in other parts of the world would potentially see this as an opportunity to gain on some of these strategic resources that they've been coveting for some time now. Um, but again, I, I don't think the United States is in any real danger of you know, losing a war or even taking a high number of casualties with respect to Ukraine. Having said that, the question that we all have to ask ourselves with respect to a full declaration of war of Russia would be, is it really worth the blood and treasure that we would inevitably spend in order to defend the Ukraine? And this is nothing against the Ukrainian people, it's just that, like anything else, we need to be first concerned about our interests and first concerned with respect to the lives of American uh, men and women, and, and specifically men and women in uniform. And so I think it's important to understand that before we get fully engaged, we need to look at all the different strategic implications of that, not just in the Ukraine, not just in Western Europe, but what this could also mean for you know, some of our concerns and foreign interests with respect to Asia as well. So again, I, I think that you know, full-on declaring war against Russia and getting involved on the ground in the Ukraine is probably a bad idea. All right, so what's the next level? What's the next level down from, from all-out war? Well, that's the part where you actually get into more of the special operations world. And again, my, 
you know, I, I spent my time in the military in the 82nd Airborne Division, the 25th Infantry, and the last five years within Army Special Forces conducting counterinsurgency operations, etc. So that's the part where you could actually see the United States taking on something of an advisory role with respect to Ukrainian ground forces and potentially backing that up with some level of air support uh, in order to prevent the Russians from gaining total air dominance. Because again, if it's just Russia against Ukraine, the Russians wipe out the Ukrainians. I'm sorry, there's just no way the Ukrainian military stands up to the Russians. Um, the, the only way that they could potentially defend themselves and you know, sue for some sort of a peace where Ukraine remains independent or a significant portion of Ukraine remains independent is that if they could drag the war out long enough with an with a insurgency to where essentially the Russian economy you know, is, is struggling, they can't maintain because again, the dirty little secret here is the Russian economy is not very strong. The Russian military is, is, not a, is nowhere near as advanced as like the United States. And so there, there, is a there is a potential strategy here where you could essentially prop up the Ukrainians enough with air support, advisory support, equipment, et cetera, to where they could hold off the Russians long enough in order to sue for some sort of peace where you maintain some semblance of the current borders Perhaps Russia gets some sort of um, land concessions in that. Um, the biggest thing that Putin would want to make sure of is that, you know, from a from a populist perspective, he has to come away the winner for his own people. Otherwise, he runs the risk of potentially being supplanted in his own country. Right. So that's that's the second level. Right. That's where the United States does engage militarily on some level, but it's very very limited. There's another option. That other option is where the United States essentially says that, look, this is not our war. We don't have any treaties with the Ukraine that require us to fight on their behalf. And so here's what we're going to do. And this is the part where you basically strengthen up the Eastern European allies within NATO. And that's the part where whether it's through training, whether it's through the deployment of forces, whether it's through um, you know, certain negotiations that have already been in, the, in, you know, in talks at some point of you know, putting certain US military bases in Eastern European countries, you forward those along. And, and essentially what happens is that you're telling Russia that on some level, you might support the Ukraine monetarily, you might support them through equipment, but you're not going to dedicate US ground forces, nor are you gonna dedicate US military forces. Uh, another eventuality with that is you could say that Ukrainian forces could come to a neutral country like Poland, um, and the United States military might provide training or resources to them to where they could go back into Ukraine and fight. But essentially, it would be a Ukrainian war with the U.S. providing some sort of assistance. And if you want an example of this, you could, you could look at like the early days of World War II with like the Lend-Lease Act, where we were providing uh, various countries that were fighting Nazi Germany with equipment, um, you know, with, with other forms of like monetary support, but we weren't actively engaged in any sort of combat role. That's one where I, I actually see uh, U.S. strategic interests being protected on some level, while at the same time, you know, again, not once again dedicating U.S. men and women in uniform to fight a war that, quite frankly, is not our war. All right, this, this idea that, well, if Russia takes Ukraine, then they're going to take Romania, and then they're going to take Poland, and then they're going to take Estonia. Like, I, I really don't see the Russians being able to do that. Um, I, I don't think Putin has that in his grand plan. The real question here is that if Putin gets away with doing something in Ukraine, does that shift the balance of power within Eastern Europe to where now a lot of those countries that have been associating themselves with the West are now feel like they have to associate themselves with Russia in order to prevent invasion? And that's the part where U.S. support for Eastern Europe, uh, especially our NATO allies, which we are required by treaty to defend, that's where essentially you draw the line in the sand with Russia where you say, look, 
we're, we're not going to let you get away with what you're doing in Ukraine. We're not going to become actively involved militarily, but we're going to you know, reassert ourselves with respect to our NATO allies in Eastern Europe so Russia understands that there are certain lines that if they do cross, the United States will become engaged um, as, you know, as a consequence of the treaties that we have there. And that would probably be sufficient in order to keep Russia from uh, going any further. Because like I said before, they don't have the economy, they don't have the military power in order to do that. So those are, are three levels where the United States could be engaged on, on some level in order to um, you know, disincentivize Putin from overstepping his boundaries. Now, there's some people that think the United States should not be involved at all, right? There's some people who think the United States should move all of our military forces back home. And, and again, um, it, it's amazing because a lot of people that say that, I actually associate myself with them on a lot of things when it comes to domestic policy and even some things when it comes to foreign policy, such as like demanding that before the United States become involved in a major conflict, they actually declare war. However, I do think that there is some strategic advantage to the United States and advantage to our interest in maintaining some foreign bases. Um, I think it's important that certain act, certain bad actors that would otherwise run roughshod over their neighbors and potentially destabilize entire continents know that the United States maintains a strong military presence and that if you cross certain lines, we're going to come there and we're going to punch you right in the face. And quite frankly, we have the military to do it and they don't have the military to effectively respond. Um, but again, where I draw the line is I don't think it's our job to you know, full-on take over the war for Ukraine. I certainly don't think it's our job to, you know, then engage in sort of like offensive operations into Russia. And the bottom line is that if you're not going to get involved in a war to win it, which would require offensive operations into Russia, then you probably just shouldn't get involved and you should probably limit your activity in order to defending your sphere of interest, defending your allies that you're bound by treaty to defend. And then again, you can still provide some sort of resources um, if you think that you know, Russian military action has gotten too aggressive or it's violating international law, which clearly an invasion of Ukraine would do just that. I think the other important thing here is for, once again, the United States to be able to reassert itself to where bad actors know that, again, you, <laughs> there's certain lines you can't cross because we will mess you up. Um, but that does not justify going to war. It certainly doesn't justify going to war if we don't have a declaration of war. All right, so that's kind of a once over the world. So again, tier one is we fully get involved militarily. I don't see that happening. I don't necessarily think it's a good idea. Tier two is we get involved on a limited basis to basically provide certain support to Ukraine to be able to push back against Russia. But again, that would still be declared an act of war the moment U.S. ground forces or U.S. air forces are used to um, you know, actually interdict or potentially kill Russian forces. And then the third component is to say that, look, we're going to maintain our sphere of influence. We're going to stand by our treaties. We're going to provide you know, whatever aid to Ukraine that doesn't cross the line of actually declaring war against Russia or can be construed as an act of war. But that's the limit. The wild card with Russia is that Russia is a nuclear power, right? And so this, is, this has been one of the, the interesting components of military history ever since uh, World War II. Um, there has never been, to my knowledge, right, never been a war between two nuclear powers, right? There's, there's been a lot of like proxy engagements. So the Russians in Afghanistan, the Americans in Vietnam, right, where the Russians were providing um, you know, assistance to North Vietnam. They were providing assistance to the Viet Cong, but they weren't directly engaging in combat operations against U.S. forces. The United States was providing Stinger missiles to the Mujahideen when they were fighting the Russian invasion of Afghanistan. But again, U.S. forces were not on the ground 
you know, directly engaging with Russian forces. So you can see the sort of proxy conflicts coming around. You can see different countries kind of playing a significant role behind the scenes, but not actively becoming involved because once you have two nuclear powers combating with one another, then the big question is, 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 any gonna be, is anybody gonna be willing to use nuclear weapons? Now, I don't think Putin would do that. Again, I think what Putin is playing off of right now is a couple of factors. One, he sees the United States as being war-weary. He sees Joe Biden as being weak. I don't think he's wrong on any of those factors. He also sees the Ukrainian government as being corrupt. He sees a large Russian ethnic population. He got away with doing stuff in Crimea before. I think he sees he might be able to take some additional advantages. But the bottom line is, Putin, whatever Putin does, he has to do it quickly, he has to do it effectively, and then he has to essentially sue for peace as quickly as possible in order to consolidate gains. So that's gonna be the strategic question for the United States is what sort of role do we wanna play in order to prevent that from taking place? And again, reassuring our allies that we are bound to treaty by that we will come in and protect them um, if, if they face some sort of you know, aggressive uh, attack by Russia or you know, again, theoretically one of their allies. Um, and that's why I, I think all of this is, is very interesting. Um, here's the other thing that I, I would ask everyone to think about that's a little bit different. Part of the consequence of what we're seeing right now in Ukraine is a result of the United States' involvement in Iraq and Afghanistan, and especially Afghanistan, right? Iraq, to some degree, is, is maintained some level of stability, right? Obviously, there was huge problems with ISIS, but there's still an elected Iraqi government. Um, we can ask questions all day long about how much of that government is actually closer to Iran than they are the United States, and those are all fair questions. But Afghanistan pretty much leaves no doubt in anyone's mind that we went over to do a particular task, and had that task been just to punish the Taliban, you know, degrade al-Qaeda, and then leave, that would have been one thing. But the U.S. strategy quickly shifted into, no, we're going to create some sort of, you know, democratic utopia in Afghanistan. And again, I, I think it's I'm very, very skeptical on whether or not that was ever achievable in the first place. And by the nature of how we withdrew, it allowed other actors such as China, such as Pakistan, to once again kind of reassert their authority in that country. The Taliban is running it again. And so that joke that the United States spent 20 years replacing the Taliban with the Taliban holds up to some degree. That's not to say that our, our men and women in uniform that served over there didn't achieve you know, positive objectives, again, with the degrading of... Um, Al-Qaeda and other terrorist organizations, but ultimately U.S. foreign policy failed the people that we sent over there. And again, Putin is betting on the fact that we're not willing to re-engage in Ukraine. So as we move forward, there's a couple of things I would ask everyone to consider. One is, what do we honestly want to see the U.S. role is in the world? And we do have strategic interests with respect to Eastern Europe. We do have strategic interests with respect to trade with European countries. We do have interest with respect to certain bad actors, especially in you know, quasi-totalitarian regimes like China, or we'll say, um, you know, I don't want to say despotic, but, but certainly oligarchical regimes like in Russia. We do want them to know that there's lines that they can't cross and the U.S. will intervene, because, not because we want to go to war, but because essentially it keeps them within their place. Um, but we also need to recognize that when we get involved, in a 20-year conflict like we did in Afghanistan, that has implications that go far beyond Afghanistan. You know, not only can we look back and say, okay, was it worth the cost that we played and paid in blood and treasure with respect to our operations in Afghanistan, but we can now also ask from a strategic implication, from a strategic sense, um, was our involvement there past a certain point? Did it weaken us on the world stage? 
And, and I, I think it's fair to say that it, it probably did on some levels. I, I think it's, it's hard to imagine that Putin would be doing some of the things that he did if we had taken a different course of action with respect to Iraq and Afghanistan and especially Afghanistan. And this is why when those of us um, who are not isolationist, I'm not an isolationist, but those of us who believe the United States um, needs to, again, carry walk softly but carry a big stick, um, that impression, that ability to apply either soft power, which is essentially backed up with the capability to use hard power, that gets diminished when people like Putin can see that we are completely war-weary. Not to mention the fact that our own economy is struggling right now as a result of COVID lockdowns, as a result of inflationary policy, as a result of a whole host of other policies, whether it be tax, regulatory, et cetera, um, where there's just not a drive to go out there and potentially defend allies. Um, and that, that really has consequences that go beyond just the initial conflict that we're looking at. So my hope going forward is this. One, um, Russia de- does need to know that there's lines that they can't cross, and if they do cross them, they're going to be punished. That has to be established. Two, we have to be a lot more strategic with respect to how we look at various engagements that we get involved in. Uh, three, if the United States military is going to be involved in any sort of significant conflict, I'm not, I'm not talking about you know, um, you know, some sort of raid to you know, rescue American hostages. I'm not talking about interdicting on an immediate threat to U.S. personnel or interests. I'm not talking about that. But when we're going to actually deploy ground forces for a long period of time, there needs to be a declaration of war, right? We need to get back to actually following constitutional processes for sending men and women into harm's way, especially if it's gonna uh, include a significant deployment for a significant period of time in a dangerous war zone. We have to get back to that. And the line I always use, because it's absolutely true, is if it's important enough to go to war, if it's important enough to send men and women to die, then it's important enough for Congress to vote on it. And if you're not willing to do that, I don't don't wanna hear anything about US national security interests if you're not willing to go through the constitutional process, because a big part of what we did when we actually raised our hand and sworn oath to the Constitution was to protect those constitutional processes, and that includes the mechanisms for going to war. So, recap. I don't think we're going to World War III. I don't think Russia has the military or economic process to carry this beyond maybe certain limited objectives that they might have in the Ukraine. I do think the U.S. needs to be able to reassert ourselves within the world into such a way to where bad actors like Vladimir Putin understand that there's lines that they can't cross and our allies understand that we will have their back. The other thing that I think is really important here, NATO needs to finally step up and recognize that they have an obligation to provide for their own security. Let's face it, bottom line, NATO for too long has relied on U.S. military dominance in order to protect them. And not only is that not fair to American women in uniform, it's not fair to the American taxpayer, right? It's it's all fun and games when some of these European countries, not all, but some of these European countries can essentially massively cut their defense budget and pour it all into these little social programs that they'd never be able to do if they actually had to provide for their own defense, right? Well, now we actually have a situation where they're going to have to start to wonder, what is the U.S. involvement going to be? And quite frankly, I think one of our strategic objectives from all of this going on should be to not only push back against Putin, but to also let our NATO allies know that we expect them to actually live up to their end of the deal when it comes to the treaties they sign. And if they're not willing to do that, well then maybe they shouldn't be so willing to you know, live in a world where they think the American taxpayer or the American service member is going to make up 
for their lack of being able to provide for their own defense, right? So that's kind of a once over the world. I hope you found this useful. If you have any questions for me on this, please comment on our Facebook, comment on our YouTube channel. Again, we like to get back on those. We like to engage. This is a complex issue. We're not going to solve it all in a you know 20 to 30 minute podcast. But I wanted to give you kind of a once over the world, just from my perspective, having served overseas, having fought, having worked within special operations, having worked within the defense world for quite a while now, I wanted to give my perspective on what I see going on there and what potential US military or US foreign policy response should be as a result of all of this. Once again, thank you for joining us on Making the Argument, and we'll see you next episode. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to GoodRanchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.